Thanks to modern technology <clears throat> and John Hodges, uh, we have a flash report that I want to give you uh, from uh, the Middle East. Uh, we heard that uh, the team will be moving uh, this Friday. They will be flying to Baghdad. Apparently, theirs were the only visas that were issued, and it was with a great deal of uh, effort, but uh, they have received them, and they will be flying out this Friday. So that's really good news. Let's pray and thank God for that. Father, thank you for the way that you have answered our prayers, and we pray that now that you would do a great and mighty work uh, through your people as they proclaim the gospel in dark places. And we look to you to uh, to do miraculous things, and we will give you the honor and the glory and the praise. And we pray that you would work in our midst as well, through your word and through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This is lesson seven in a series on the uh, letters to the, or letter to the churches uh, of Asia, and uh, we're in chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. I'm going to toss something in that I didn't put in my notes, but it occurred to me. When I was preaching in Asia some time ago, uh, I happened to, to choose to preach through Genesis. And so I was working on the story of, uh, of Joseph and his brothers, but of course it all starts with the with the the strife that goes on in the midst of the of the wives of uh, Jacob, you remember. And so, anyway, after uh, one or two of those messages, uh, you know that Genesis uh, 38 talks about uh, Potiphar's wife and whatever, and there's all kinds of intrigue going on. But one of the men came up and he said, "All you do is talk about sex, sex, sex all the time." And I. Well, you know, that really is what's in the Bible. And so this morning, I'm going to talk to you about sex, because it's here. And uh, if you think it's sex, 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 well, if you listened to the message for Pergamum, it was. But we're going to leave it after this this uh, particular Sunday. These two churches, Pergamum and Thyatira, specifically have this whole issue of sexual immorality in the sights of our Lord. Now, if you look on the PowerPoint, you'll see the city of Thyatira that is um, uh, there. It is an inland city, about roughly 40 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. And uh, we know virtually nothing about it other than the fact that Lydia, in Acts chapter 16, is said to come from Thyatira. From what I have read, it apparently had something like 20,000 people uh, living there at the time that this uh, this letter is written. And if I'm correct in what I've read, it has something like 100,000 people uh, living there today. It is about 75 miles uh, from Ephesus, and it is on the route that is between Pergamum and Sardis. And you will note, too, the length of this particular letter. It is the longest letter that is written to any of the uh, seven churches. Now, look at the description of our Lord that we get in chapter 2 and, and verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, 
the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. Interestingly, that expression, the Son of God, is found only once in the book of Revelation, and this is, this is the place. There are all kinds of other descriptive words used for our Lord, but he is called the Son of God here. I couldn't help but look at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 5 because I read these words. And who is the one who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So here's something going on in the church that obviously needs to be addressed, but it's a good thing to keep in mind that the one who is speaking about the problem is the one who is the Son of God, and surely he is the one who can not only perceive it as it really is, but deal with it as it really needs. Then you see the description of him as one having eyes like a flame of fire. That goes back to the description in chapter 1. But I also found this verse in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 8. A king who sits in the throne of justice disperses all evil with his eyes. For those of you who were school teachers, as I once was, or who are, Keep this verse in mind. It is amazing what you can do with your eyes in a classroom. Without saying a word, you just rivet those old eagle eyes and watch them wilt. And especially if they know that you might be, well be expected to follow through. But if you look also in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, you'll see the description there of our Lord and and part of that description is, again, uh, our Lord with these flaming eyes, but also out of his mouth comes this two-edged sword, and it is this point in Revelation where it speaks of him bringing judgment upon his enemies. So this is no idle threat. The eyes are the window of the soul, and there is something to be seen in the eyes of our Lord as he speaks to this church and as he describes himself. It says also that he has feet like burnished bronze. That takes me back to Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And remember, the dream is of a, there is of a statue, not a living being. But that statue has the head of gold and, and remember the, the breast of silver and then they got the bronze down here and finally the feet are iron mixed with clay. So that when that stone comes from nowhere and strikes this thing, it, it, this image just, just literally vaporizes, pulverizes into dust and just blows away. I guess the point is, iron and clay don't make for good feet. And and if you don't have good foundations, you're not going to stand. Now compare that with Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. And here is the vision that Daniel sees, not of a statue, but of our living Lord. Listen to what it says, Daniel chapter 10 and verse 5. Oh, I love the turning of the pages, and i got to tell you a story. I was down at the seminary with Bill last week, and I was sitting next to the president of the seminary, and they and they were turning in their scriptures, and everybody else was rustling through their pages. And he was going, 
through his iPad. I thought, there's something really wrong with this. At least, at least give me the sound of a turning page in that iPod, you know, so their iPad. So you really hear those scriptures. I love the sound. All right. So in Daniel chapter 10, we read these words. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. His body was like burl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. If you'll pardon me, I call those heat-treated feet. And what that means is there's no stone going to hit those feet and make that person collapse and vaporize, right? And when you think about that, then in terms of Ephesians chapter 6 and the armor that the Christian is supposed to have, we are supposed to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Anybody who is going to fight, whether it be offensive or defensive, had better be on solid footing. And our Lord is clearly that. He sees with eyes of fire. He stands firmly on feet of bronze. All right, let's look now at our Lord's assessment of the church in chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. It's a little hard to make the breaks here, and they're a little bit artificial, but let's take a look. I know your deeds and your love and your faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Some say that woman Jezebel, I kind of like that, uh, who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and lead and, and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. So the commendation in verse 19, very similar to that which we find of the church at Ephesus uh, at the beginning of this whole matter, at the beginning of chapter 2. They are love, faith, service, endurance, and growth. Now, This is where you have a departure from Ephesus. Ephesus had a pit bull mentality when it came to doctrinal purity. They had a problem with love. And Ephesus is never said to have grown. They are said, they are told to look back as it were, were, to where they were. So they have backslidden in some way or form where this church is actually growing. And they have the love that Ephesus doesn't have. (laughs) What they don't have is that urge to keep pure doctrine and practice. It's not here as described by our Lord Jesus. Now look at the condemnation of Jezebel. And, And I want to say to you, first of all, It is expected of these people, Gentiles though they were, it is expected of them to know the Old Testament well enough to draw up in their minds a mental picture. I hope you you would read it like I do. And you would say, this woman, is her name is not literally Jezebel. Right? 
Now, you know that I call my wife Sapphire, and I might as well go on and tell you that it, it, it happened long ago when my, I and my roommates were dating, and, and one of my roommates' wife we nicknamed Jezebel. Needless to say, <laughs> I don't know why. Needless to say, it didn't stick. And you know why. The name Jezebel ring, brings up an image. And so this Jezebel is, is not, in my opinion, is not literally named Jezebel. She just is a Jezebel. The bad girls of the Bible find her as their queen. Now, what do we know from the Old Testament? First Kings chapter 16, we know that she was the daughter of a Sidonian king. She was royalty, <laughs> but of the wrong kind. Now, now she's going to be the king's wife of Israel, but in reality, she should have had absolutely no power or authority. In fact, one might even wonder if she should have lived. So she's the daughter of a Sidonian king, a foreigner. Uh, she killed the true prophets of God. You remember the whole story where the prophets were hidden away in, in groups of 50, uh, to keep her from killing them, so she was uh, doing great damage and opposing uh, the true God of Israel and his prophets. And she was a great manipulator. She manipulated Ahab, and she acted with his authority. Now, I'm going clearly to 1 Kings chapter 21 and the, the field of Naboth. You remember Naboth's vineyard? And, and here's, uh, I don't know how to say it nicely, Ahab was a wimp, was he not? He was just a flat wimp. So here he is. He decides that it would be nice and convenient if he owned this vineyard that was close to, apparently adjacent to his property. And so he offers a more than reasonable payment for that property. The problem was that in Israel, you had to keep your property within your family inheritance. He could not sell it, no matter what the price was. So... Ahab comes home whimpering and crying and, and being depressed. And, and, and Jezebel says, oh, for crying out loud, buck up. I'll get that field for you. She sends out, remember, a letter of instruction to these people. So they're going to have this, this, this uh, fasting and whatever. And all of this is because there must be something terribly wrong in Israel. And then people are going to bring these false charges against Naboth. And he will be put to death and the king ends up with his property. But all of that is done by Jezebel in Ahab's name with his authority. So she is a manipulator for sure. She dies an ugly death. I'm sorry I couldn't resist dog food. What? Is that not right? It said there won't be anything left to bury. Uh, the dogs are going to eat her. And you remember the, the story and I might as well tell this last part, she relied on her beauty. Now here comes old Jehu, speed demon that he was. He drove worse than Gary Boatman in his Corvette. <laughs> I just had to say that. Okay, so he doesn't really drive badly. I was just pulling his leg. But old Jehu, you know, he was laying rubber all over town, racking his pipes, and people saw him and they said, now that guy drives like Jehu, right? He was a bad driver. He squeals up to the palace and out comes Jezebel, but not immediately. What does she do first? She goes to the beauty parlor. 
And it's interesting to look how the translations do this. One put says they put, she put mascara on her eyes and whatever. But, and then I think the old King James just says she painted her face. Well, that's not bad. We all know what that means. And she had a lot fewer choices then than we have, women have today. I can imagine it'd take about a day for her to get ready to lean out that window. But the bottom line was she was still relying on her physical beauty. She wants Jehu to look upon her and she felt that she was so stunning in her beauty that Jehu, like Ahab, just didn't know how to say no. So she leans out the window. You remember what Jehu says? Who up there? There's a couple of servants looking out the window with her. Who up there is for me? Then give her a push. Whoosh. Out she goes. Painted face and all. And the dogs loved it. It was just like barbecue sauce. And away they went. Anyway, that's the story of her. Now, the ugly death is is a part of the picture, folks. The ugly death has to be seen as a part of the picture because that's where her conduct and immorality led. It was God's judgment upon her for her sin. All right, so now let's take a look at what we know from our text about Jezebel. Oh, I have to tell you, I get a kick out of this. There's a little textual variation. And so where it says, most of our translations would say, that woman or the woman, Jezebel. There's not a dispute, but there, there are some manuscripts that say your woman. And, and when you see your in that way, you would tend to translate that word wife, which it could mean either one, woman or wife. Your wife. I love reading A.T. Robertson, the Baptist, who says it can't possibly be your wife. Because then Jezebel would have been the pastor's wife. You know what? I don't think they're too far away from that. In other words, who was this woman? Who was Jezebel and where did she get her authority? She got it from her husband, did she not? Now, I'm not saying she's the pastor's wife. She may have been an elder's wife. But the reality is she operates on authority outside of her own. That's her power base, as I understand it. Anyway, that woman. The other thing I would underscore here is this. Her gender is important in this text. He does not say that person. He says that woman, Jezebel. And that's why I say this this whole passage has a kind of sexual connotation or aura to it. And if you don't see that, then you're going to miss it because that's what's going on, I think, in this whole thing. Just like Adam found it hard to say no to Eve, Ahab found it hard to say no to Jezebel. And some people find it hard to say no to women heretics today. All right. She's a self-proclaimed prophetess. She is not a prophet, right? She would be a false prophet, but she claims divine authority. So when she gets off in some of these really uh, ethereal things, she's not coming out of the Scriptures, folks. She's coming out of her revelation. She teaches and leads saints astray. Now, does that send off little buzzers in your head, little bells, little red lights, teaching and leading? You remember Paul wrote to Timothy about Ephesus, 75 miles away, and he said that I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. We're saying, well, wait a minute. 
this gal is actually in some kind of authoritative position that is functionally, I don't know that she's there in terms of the actual formalities, but she actually is exercising authority that is leading other people astray. And you say to yourself, how could that possibly be? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. She focuses on what's called the deep things of Satan. You know, it's interesting that when you look at uh, Pergamum, not far away, Pergamum was the place that was called Satan's city. His throne was there. Uh, Bill McRae, when he was uh, at the men's retreat, talked about spiritual warfare. And we know, the scripture says, we are not to be ignorant of his devices. It is one thing to teach what the scripture teaches about Satan. I don't think that's where she's coming from at all. When she's going to the deep things of Satan, it seems to me that what she's saying is something like this. You know, we really as, as Christians need to understand more about our enemy. And so she goes off into all this stuff that frankly, we ought not to be talking about. Remember when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, there are things that are a part of darkness that ought not to even be spoken of? I think she's talking about them. And there's a certain appeal to those things. Do you remember when God says to the Israelites, you're going to come into the land and you're going to, you're going to take possession of those cities and, and part of that is you're going to take some of the spoil. Some of the spoil was their idols and their paraphernalia. And much of that, my friend, was pornographic in the sense of visual, uh, uh, the pictures that that had in, in terms of the visual imagery. And what does God say to Israel? When you pick up one of these things, whatever it is, what you don't do is say, honey, come and look at this. This, I wonder how they used this. You don't go there. You know why? Because it's not profitable to go there. And it seems to me she's into territory that is outside the boundaries, and it is that territory which seems to be seductive in terms of leading some astray into immorality and false doctrine. Now, the way I read the text, she in the past was given the opportunity to repent. I do not know how that came about. I don't know whether a prophet in the church confronted her with her sin or even if the church sought to exercise discipline. But in some way or form, she is confronted. And, and the way the text reads, that was, a, that was a past action. The text reads, and she still doesn't want to repent. In other words, rebuke is past. Unwillingness to repent is ongoing into the present. If I'm reading correctly, and I believe I am. Her doom is coming, and it isn't pretty. Would you not agree with that? Now, I, I, I have to tell you, I, when I read this text, it is a mixture, if I understand correctly, it is a mixture of metaphor and literal. So that when it speaks about meats offered to idols and immorality, I believe it's literal immorality. I don't know what, I don't need to know what, but it really falls neatly in that category. But when it talks about them committing adultery with her, I'm not really clear on, on exactly what that means, and I don't need to be clear, but it may well be metaphorical at that point. So when it says, when our Lord says, I will throw her into her 
bed of sickness. It's not hard to figure out what the bed has to do with that whole imagery. The sickness, whether she actually gets ill in all of that, I don't know. But it seems to me what God is saying is, I'm going to take her and I'm going to deal with her in judgment in a way that is very fitting and appropriate for her offense. So her doom is coming, and like Jezebel's, it won't be pretty. And that doom, of course, comes to others who follow her. So I asked the question, how did Jezebel pull it off? I don't think she was ugly, folks. I don't think she was ugly. In fact, I would tend to say she was exotic in her beauty. Why do you think Solomon, for example, and David, what was so interesting about foreign wives? There's something about the exotic element of that that probably is not altogether healthy, and there is some appeal to that. And I say with Jezebel, why are you putting your makeup on the last minute? Because that was the way she got her way, I think. She probably put it on and said, and I deserve it. And then one of those commercials that say that, you know, I do my hair and I'm worth it. She was too. Okay, I'm sorry. I just had to say that. And by usurping her husband's authority. I don't, look at folks. Can't, can you see this? Here we are, 75 miles away from a church that's been told women are not to teach or to lead men. Here she is doing that. We know immorality is forbidden. How does that happen? How does somebody manage to do that? And if our Lord chose to call her Jezebel, is it possible that she did it just like Jezebel did? Now, maybe she wasn't the pastor's wife. Maybe she was an elder's wife. And, you know, that creates all kinds of difficulties <laughs> from what I understand about elders because... Are you going to go to your elders and say, so-and-so, <clears throat> uh, -so, your wife's out of line? <laughs> it's a little tough. But it seems to me that there's something going on of that nature. Okay. Responses to Jezebel in the church. We see really two, don't we? The first response is that of those who are growing in their love and their faith and their service and their perseverance, they are growing believers. But somehow these people have chosen to let this go on and not participate in it, but not aggressively attack it. I think you'd have to say, this wouldn't have happened in Ephesus. Am I right? They may not have lovingly kicked her out, folks, but she'd have been out in Ephesus. May have been a little love lost there in Ephesus, but it would have happened. Somehow here, these godly people are playing a passive role. Now, I'm going to go ahead and cheat and tell you a little bit of my theory. What if it was an elder-led church and the people said to themselves, and it's Mrs. Elder, Perhaps some of those people said, I'm not an elder in this church. I'm not a leader in this church. It's the elder's responsibility. Does our Lord let them off? Does he say, oh, okay, that's a leadership problem and it must not be yours? seems to me what he's saying is, you're sitting there and letting it happen. But you have a responsibility as people in the body of Christ. You have a responsibility for it to be dealt with within the body. All right, those who did follow Jezebel. 
Sexual immorality, food sacrificed to idols. Boy, that whole thing that you see in Acts chapter 15, and then you see again in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through chapter 11, as I read them, about uh, food offered to idols and how important it is, how significant it is to be a part when you're a part of that heathen, idolatrous worship. And remember Exodus 32, golden calf, Aaron declares a, a, a worship holiday. They rose up to eat, to drink, and to play. I think we need go no further than that. And you understand exactly what's going on. That was at the heart and soul of heathen religion, folks. That's what it was about. No wonder you had mega churches in those days. Everybody was going to church every day of the week. How spiritual could you be? So... There are those who are following her, and, and then it says they commit adultery with her. I, again, I, I don't know whether what, what's going on there is there is such a level of sensuality that that immorality, and by the way, it changes from the word porneia, which speaks more generically of, of all kinds of sexual immorality, to adultery. So I don't know whether there is actually some kind of mental thing going on where by nature, the nature of what she is doing and how she is doing it, it actually causes men to stumble in that, in that area of their lives. Don't know. But that's what it says. Commit adultery with her. Bad stuff going on in that church. The call to repentance and action. Our Lord does not call on Jezebel to repent. He did that earlier. Her time of judgment is coming soon. He will cast her on the bed of sickness. Her children, and there again, sounds metaphorical to me. Those who are the offspring, the product of what she has done, they're going to suffer and they're going to die of some plague or whatever it is. It's, it's not pretty. Judgment is coming on her and on those who follow her. And uh, those who didn't follow her are expected to do something. I didn't get this until it finally occurred to me when he says, I place no other, or some texts say, additional burden on you. Initially, I came away with a question saying, why doesn't he tell the church to deal with her? <laughs> when he says, I don't place any other burden on you, I think what he's saying is this. I do expect you to deal with her. I do expect it. I'm not laying a whole bunch of other things on you, but this one thing you better get right. Take care of this. No other responsibilities. Just this one. Deal with that. Hold fast to those things which you have been taught. Promised rewards for overcomers to reign triumphantly with Jesus Christ as he brings justice and judgment and defeat to his enemies. Isn't that the picture that you see? The picture of, of, uh, of now prevailing. If you look at, at Psalm chapter two, for instance, at verses eight and nine, you see that judgment described. Remember, the Lord is laughing at those who have their schemes and their plans against Him. And it says, Ask of me and I will surely give 
the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them with earthenware. That's exactly what Revelation 19 describes. Our Lord is going to come in judgment. And we are to reign with Him. Those who overcome will reign with Him and we will be participants in some way in the, in, in the making right of things that have to do with the evils in that church. Here's where I threw in Numbers chapter 16, verses 20 through 35. Remember the story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? It's really a revolt against God's authority uh, in Moses and Aaron over the Israelites. And God says, um, we're going to make a, a draw a dividing line. And remember, Moses says, if something absolutely out of the ordinary doesn't happen this day, then I have no authority under God. But if the ground opens up and swallows these people, then you better understand that it's God who's given me the authority. But the interesting thing that happens there is that the outcome is declared. The judgment is declared. And now Israel is called on to make a decision. And that is... Who are you going to be standing next to? Right? I mean, let's face it. Here you got all of Israel gathered around and you've got two opposite sides. And here's this, the, the, the whole rebel side over here. Can you see the Israelites just kind of moving away? <laughs> I think I'm over here. You're over there. And, and they're getting their distance because when that ground opens up, they don't want to be with them. That's the way I read this text. As God is speaking to the people in this church, he's saying, here is the outcome for people who have gone this way. You had better make a decision on which side of the line you're standing because judgment is coming upon those who have had any part in what is taking place. Okay, let's talk about some things by way of application. One is interpreting this text. I, I, you know, my fetish about about not going too heavy on extra biblical material. But one of the things I've seen is that inside the this, these seven letters, if you look at their relationship to each other, it's very suggestive and very, I think, enlightening. For example, if you compare Ephesus with Thyatira, I mean, we've already been to Ephesus, right? And so you see these characteristics that look quite similar with two differences. Ephesus doesn't have growth. Thyatira does. Ephesus lacks love. Thyatira does not. But what is it that Thyatira lacks? Discipline, right? Hating evil to the point of doing something about it when it is in their midst. So when I take these two churches and I set them side by side, it's the contrast between those two churches that begins to get instructive and informative to me. Also, if you look at Pergamum, and maybe I'm working this too hard, I don't know, but it's only Pergamum and Thyatira that talk about immorality and meats offered to idols. In Pergamum, the order is eat meats offered to idols and commit immorality. In Thyatira, the order is commit immorality and eat meats offered to idols. 
And I have to tell you, there's, I think there's a very close relationship between those two. But my point is, you can, you can move either, either direction in that. But it seems to me one thing leads to another and, and Satan is not limited in his options. He will work whichever way he wants. If, if, if he can play the game with you and mislead you and deceive you intellectually, to the point where you eventually commit immorality, that's fine. If he works on you to commit immorality so you change your theology, that's fine with him. But these two churches, when placed side by side, and I see the reverse order, I say to myself, maybe it works both ways, and maybe I ought to think about that. That would help in the interpretation. So that leads me to the conclusion. Our strengths may be very closely linked to our weaknesses. I said that before with Ephesus, but I need to say it now again. Church at Ephesus had the strength of doctrinal purity. They had the weakness of love. This church has the strength of love and the weakness of doctrinal purity. Now, when I put those two together, I say to myself, hmm, that's kind of an interesting comparison, don't you think? And all I'm saying to you is, we need both. But how easy it is for us, how easy it is for Satan to attack us in the area of our greatest strength and and actually work that to where it brings about a weakness. Every strength, when you read in Romans chapter 12 and it's talking about those who show mercy, they're to do it cheerfully. It's easy for for mercy givers to get grumpy. Because it just gets tiring and wearying. And for leaders to actually do it in a right way and for forgivers to give with not extra motivations, dual motivations for other people's gratitude, for whatever you get out of it, every strength has its corresponding weakness. And it seems to me that we see that when you put Ephesus alongside of Thyatira. Strong on love, weak on discipline. That sounds like the church at Corinth to me, who were actually proud of the fact that they had unconditionally embraced this guy living with his father's wife. Something wrong with that picture. And this text may point it out. I've said it before, but I'll say it one more time. There is a relationship between tolerance and privatization. Somehow the saints at Thyatira are able to say to themselves, well, that's them and we're us. And that's their business. That's their belief. That's their truth. That's their value system. We see that going on in the world, but friends, it's coming to the church too. Where Christians are going to begin to look at different lifestyles and whatever and say, well, that's their lifestyle. No, it isn't. It's sin. And we have to be able to draw those lines. And privatization says, I'll do my own thing. I'll have my own values, but I won't impose them on others. Our Lord's saying, impose away. Because judgment's coming. All right, I've changed this one D. I said about heresy, sex sells. It comes in many flavors. I was thinking about Baskin and Robbins, you know. Heresy comes in, in 39, 55 flavors, you name it. I, I used to have a friend who said it this way. You can go to heaven God's way 
you can go to hell any way you want. And you know what? I know that sounds unkind and crass. It's true. Satan does not care which way you wander, just so you wander from the truth. And 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 so I see here that, that one of the things that is somehow tied into this heresy is that there is a sexual orientation to that. And if you look, my friends, if you look at the Old Testament, especially the Canaanite religions, sex and spirituality were just totally intertwined, as they were in Corinth and all of these cities. Sex and immorality, in the name of spirituality, are very much intertwined, and we have to be very, very careful about that. Why are uh, many of the cults founded by women? Might be because men find it hard to say no. Well, uh, I was thinking too, it works both ways. In 2 Timothy, Paul talks about those false teachers who will take captive those silly women, you know, whatever, and go on. And, and I don't, I don't think that's talking about the stupidity of that particular group. It's saying there is something about those men that appeal to those women. And, and, and I'm saying, I think that's not devoid of a sexual element, just as we see with Balaam in, in the Balaam uh, stuff in Pergamum, and we see here, there often can be that, that element. Now, that really helped me to start to look more carefully at the New Testament and the Old. Let me start there. Old Testament. You know, you remember that text? I looked it up and then I forgot it, but it's there. I can look it up again. A text that says the priest is not to go upstairs when when he when uh, he's involved in his priestly duties because something might be seen that is unseemly and what what that text is saying is God does not want the exercise of priestly duties to have any kind of sexual orientation or connotation to it uh, when you look at the at the uh, New Testament now, and you see, for instance, in First Timothy three and and uh, in Titus chapter two, these qualifications for women. Remember, it talks. Some would argue whether it's the deacons' wives or the elders' wives. In my book, it's both. But isn't it interesting that there are qualifications, brief though they may be, for the wife of an elder? My text helps me understand why that's true. Because it's trying to filter out the Jezebels before something happens in the church where there's undue authority exercised. Now when I think about those passages from Peter and Paul that talk about women and their dominance in church, does that not start to ring a bell in your mind and say, you know, that makes some sense. That makes some sense. If the church at Thyatira was following Paul's instructions about the role of women in public worship, I don't think you'd have had Jezebel doing what she was doing in front of the church, I'm guessing. I wonder if she was a part of the music team. I want to tell you, I praise God. I praise God for the godly women, beautiful godly women in this church. But I want to tell you, there are churches where women are not sensitive to the way they dress and the way they move. When I was involved in prison ministry, 
Sometimes we'd have a group come in that would be a part of, of, of the whole program. And every once in a while I'd hear somebody say, oh, did you notice how the men were moved by that music? Are you stupid? What do you think they're, what is moving them? You know, and, and, and there again, sensuality, sexuality, and spirituality have been blended. Here are guys who are caged. And if you start moving around and doing all your things, folks, they read that a particular way. We have to be careful of how we conduct ourselves. So when Paul talks about what, the way you weigh, wear your hair, the way you beautify yourself, you know, it's not saying women ought to be ugly. It's saying women need to be careful that they do not act or look in a way that is seductive and actually be the downfall of men. Now, can we turn that around? Of course we can and should. But Jezebel's a woman. So I'm just saying, I am grateful for what I see here. I do not cringe on Sundays. I have been in churches where I do. And I say to myself, oh my goodness, what are they doing? And it's not the volume and it's not the beat. It's just the whole kind of mood that sets the wrong tone. The deep things of Satan. We need to be careful about those mysteries that have not been revealed. Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to God. Leave them alone. Leave them secret. We're here to study what God has said. And the last one, overcomers, choose the overcomer. I was so disgusted with myself two weeks ago because I've tried to say uh, what is the relationship between what's said to this church and what's said throughout the rest of Revelation. And here was Pergamum where it's Satan's city and his throne is there. And I forgot to connect it to the rest of Revelation. If you're in that city of Pergamum and Satan is really active there in what's going on, what does the rest of the book of Revelation say to you? It says to me, Jesus wins, Satan loses. Big time. Doesn't that put that whole thing in perspective? Okay, so it's Satan's city. <laughs> in the outcome, Satan's dead meat. That ought to tell me I need to align myself on the right side. When I see the benefits that are that are offered here to the overcomer, these are really the benefits of the overcomer. And I share in those benefits as I share in Him. So when I look at this text and I see that our Lord is going to be the victor over all of His enemies, that His people who are faithful to Him are going to be a part of that, it says to me, I need to be on His side not on theirs. That's what Revelation is all about. And so I close with this. If you're here and have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, Revelation tells you what side to pick. And it's standing with Jesus. It's standing with Him. In our last hour, we urged people to stand with Jesus and recognize it was His death that paid the price for our sins. His perfect life, which is so different from ours. His resurrection, which spells our life. Stand with Jesus. Not only in your salvation, but in your daily life. He is the overcomer. 
and we overcome in him. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for this word to this church at Thyatira. We recognize in our own culture how much a part sex plays in everything from selling toothpaste to whatever. It's a part of the fabric. Help us not to somehow make sexuality a factor in what draws people to Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.